So this morning, like I said, we're going to be continuing our series on the gospel of the kingdom. And again, what a great way to walk into that, looking at uh, focusing our attention on the great king. So this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be talking about lust, divorce, and lying. Do I have your attention? Okay. <laughs> so the reason we want to talk about those three things is so that we can also have a conversation about purity, faithfulness, and honesty. Okay, so Jesus brings these things up this morning. And, you know, this morning as we move into our time of, of looking at the Word and into this sermon, I want you to think about making a trip to the grocery store. Okay, a lot of times when you go to the grocery store, at least in this country, you have a huge variety of things to choose from. I mean, look, there's a picture here of just the produce section alone. Uh, you have to decide what you want to buy, what you don't want to buy. You can pick it up and decide uh, which ones you want and which ones you don't want. You know, it's interesting, about 12 months ago, we became aware of how much we had grown, like, accustomed to this idea of having selection uh, when this whole COVID crisis hit. You remember that? When you went to the grocery store and you realized just how much you'd been taking that selection for granted. Uh, remember, uh, what do you mean there's no more bacon? How can we be out of bacon? You remember going and the whole meat section was empty? Or uh, uh, no eggs? No, we didn't have that problem. We have chickens out on the farm, but we had to start watching out for these egg thieves that live in the neighborhood. Uh, not talking about you, Pete. Uh, Pete lives close by, but uh, you're out of hand sanitizer. You're out of, what do you mean? I can't choose the kind of toilet paper I want. You don't have any toilet paper? <laughs> do you remember that? It was a little bit uh, unnerving. It was eye-opening. But this morning... I want us to realize that I think many times when we look at Jesus' teaching, especially things that he says in places like Sermon on the Mount, we approach it like we approach the grocery store, okay? I've got a lot of things I can choose from, so I'll take some of that, but I'll leave that behind. Uh, this one's my favorite. Ooh, I really like this stuff, but maybe the produce, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that. I'm just going to skip that whole section. You know, we can do that at the grocery store. We like our options. You know... Amazon, all the online shopping, you see, we like to have options. But I think we approach Jesus and his teaching in the same way sometimes. Because what we do is we say, yes, I love it when he talks about forgiveness. Give me a jumbo pack of that. You know, I'll take more of that. Or when he says, uh, you can have heaven and eternal life. Absolutely. Give me all you got. I'll take everything you have. But when it comes to more difficult teachings, especially things like we're going to talk about today, um, challenges from Jesus, we tend to skip over the parts we don't like. One of the beautiful things, though, I think about preaching through the Word of God and preaching expositorily is that when things come up, you have to deal with them. You can't jump around and skip over the things you don't like. And so today, instead of saying, yeah, we'll just move on to the next section, we want to jump into this text and we want to challenge that grocery store approach to Jesus. Because I think there's actually a better way to view this life of following Jesus. Take a look at this picture. Jesus says, you're the light of the world. There's only one source to get the power from. There's not a lot of options we have to go and choose. Where can we decide how we're supposed to live? What's the way we're supposed to live? Jesus says, my way is the good way. He is the light. He is the way, the truth, and the life. In him is fullness of life. And so this morning I would ask you, do you want joy? Do you want fulfillment? Do you want happiness, blessedness? His way is ultimately the only way that makes sense. 
And you know, we can't pick and choose. We are called to embrace Him and His way. Connect to Him. Plug into His, to a relationship with Him. It's called kingdom living. You know, we mentioned this last week. This idea of, of living in the kingdom is a new way of living. A new way of living. Because, you see, it's a new way of thinking. Uh, Romans 12.2 says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So this morning, as I mentioned, we're going to talk about these three things, lust, divorce, and lying. Because we want to examine the places that we may have been conformed to the pattern of the world in these areas. And we want to be transformed by the renewing of our mind through the words that Jesus speaks to us here this morning. And so that's our goal. That's what we're going to be looking at. Kingdom living, which is true life. Kingdom living, which is true life. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 37. And really in this section, I mentioned this last week. Jesus goes out and, and says six times to the, to the Pharisees and to the people who are listening. He says, you've heard that it was said. But I say to you, so six things, he kind of sets up a contrast. He says, you're not understanding this the right way. I want you to understand it the way that I, the Lord God, intended for you to understand it. And so today we're going to look at three of those. We're actually going to spend uh, the most time on the first word of instruction. So we would call these three instructions. Uh, and, that, and the title of the sermon is Faithful and True. What we see here in the Sermon on the Mount is God is calling us, especially in these three statements, to be faithful and true. Before we read the text, there's one really interesting thing. You know that faithful and true is actually one of the names that's given to Jesus in the book of Revelation. It talks about, it says, I saw him mounted on a white horse and his name was faithful and true. And yet when we read Jesus' teaching, we see that he is calling us to be faithful and true in these three areas. And so it's an amazing thing that we serve the great king. And yet he says, I want to make you like me. I want to make you faithful and true. And so we're going to look at these three words of instruction and what the scripture says about it, what Jesus has to say about it. And there's going to be, I think, a lot of good takeaways for us this morning. So instruction number one, the very first thing that Jesus mentions is this idea of this instruction is to do not commit adultery. So look in your Bibles. We're going to read this section, Matthew 5 verses 27 through 30. It says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body goes into hell. This is Matthew 5, 27 through 30. That's the first section of our text today. So you've probably read those verses before or heard them before, and you know it raises a lot of questions. Like, literally, am I supposed to go gouge my eye out uh, if, I, if I sin by what I look at? Should I cut my hand off if it causes me to sin? We want to answer those questions and others this morning. But first thing is this. God is saying the commandment was given in the Old Testament, do not commit adultery. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. This is one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, and so in this commandment, commandment number seven, uh, Moses told the people that God says, thou shalt not commit adultery. 
Uh, and that would be being sexually unfaithful to anyone other than your spouse. Uh, and the Ten Commandments are, of course, repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 5. So this is interesting. We looked at this last week where Jesus says, you shall not murder. And we can fall into a trap here because you could say, okay, uh, do not commit adultery. I'm good. I'm going to check that box. Never, I've never been unfaithful to my wife. Um, and so I can just check that box, just like the one last week. I've never killed anybody, so I'm not guilty. But Jesus says, not so fast. He says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And just so we're clear, Jesus is talking, he's specifically addressing men here. But again, remember this whole Sermon on the Mount is about the matters of the heart. So the principles that are here apply to both men and women, this idea of purity. You know, the danger of looking at these commands is kind of a box that you check and say, yep, I haven't done that, I'm, I'm good. That's actually, I think, what the Bible calls a false religion. It's a religion of works. It's saying that if I do all the right things, then God will accept me. And Jesus is saying, no, it's impossible for you to do that. The only way you can be righteous is through me. There's a couple dangers. Number one, that you could just say, yeah, I'm good. I've checked that box. Or you could be on the other end of the spectrum and you could say, man, I've failed in that area. I blew it. Maybe I've even just blown it like Jesus said. I've thought wrong thoughts. And so it's hopeless. I'm broken. I've broken the command. Well, whichever side of the spectrum you find yourself on, here's good news. Jesus gives hope and restoration and healing in all situations. And that's good news for us this morning. So this morning, as we look at that command and what Jesus says about it, we see that Jesus is really making a point here that it's not just your actions, but it's also your thoughts that matter. Your thoughts actually matter. And uh, and here's the thing. Last week we talked about how it's not just your actions, but it's also your words that matter. So now it's both your thoughts and your words and your actions. And you might be saying, whew, Marcus, it's getting harder and harder. What are you doing here? I'm just repeating the words of Jesus. But what I want us to see when we look at the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus says it's impossible for you to be righteous on your own. You can't do this unless you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. He cleanses you from all unrighteousness. So thoughts matter. Basically, Jesus is saying do not commit adultery, but also do not lust. Do not desire another person uh, sexually uh, other than your spouse. Thoughts matter. You may have heard this called stinking thinking, right? All of us struggle with this. Wrong thoughts, Jesus says, are equivalent to adultery. And he makes it clear in these verses that adultery brings God's wrath. We see the seriousness of it. He's saying if you commit these sins, if you do these things, you'd be better off if you just got rid of your eye or your hand. So Jesus lays out this higher standard. Again, if you're shopping in the grocery store... You'd say, man, I think I'll just leave that one behind. That's a little too hard for me to follow. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that one behind, Jesus. But remember, we can't unplug ourselves from the source of life. He says, follow my way. It's the only true way. Thoughts matter. We think about this idea of, of sexual purity and, and thoughts. You know, today we live in a culture where this is a huge battle. Huge battle. And here's the thing, it's actually not unique to 2021. 
This has been a battle for humans throughout history. In fact, we're going to look at that in just a little bit. But this was just as big, if not maybe even a bigger battle in Paul's day. Because sexual promiscuity, sexual freedom was all over the place. It was valued. It was elevated. And so I would just say this, as we're looking at this heart of the matter, and Jesus says that thoughts matter. So if we think about today, what are the areas where you find yourself in danger? Where can your thoughts go astray? Because we don't have to look very far. I mean, it can take very little to make your thoughts go astray. And I would say this, there's a couple of danger zones that we're going to be talking about this morning. One danger zone would be this, it would be pornography. Uh, That's a, a reality that didn't exist necessarily in the days of Paul, definitely not as as prevalent in the days of Paul. In fact, even when I was growing up, I'm 40 years old, uh, pornography was a lot harder to access than it is now. Now you have this thing called the internet. So that's a major danger zone in this. Jesus says that if you're thinking about something with lustful intent, think about another person with lustful intent, that's the same as committing adultery. Well, guess what? There's a whole industry out there uh, designed uh, with that in mind, the porn industry. So this is a danger zone. Before we move on from that, I want us to understand really kind of what the danger actually is there. And then we're going to talk about why it actually makes a difference. But here's just a few statistics on this thing with pornography. And we know it affects our mental purity. Pornography says, uh, there's some stats here that I pulled up this week. And it says over 40 million Americans are regular visitors to porn sites. 40 million. And that's not just occasional. That's that's regular visitors, okay? Um there, it says the average visit lasts six minutes and 29 seconds. So six and a half minutes. That's a lot of time. There are about 42 million porn websites, which totals at least 370 million pages of porn. I bet that's conservative because if you look around the world, it's probably a billion pages of porn. Things that are designed to lead people's minds astray. Okay. And, uh, and, and we walk right into those things. All right, listen to this. This is interesting. The porn industry's annual revenue is more than the NFL, the NBA, and the MLB combined. All these professional sports don't yield as much money as this. It is also more than the combined revenues of ABC, CBS, and NBC, the major networks. So we're talking major money. People have figured out how to monetize this. Jesus is on to something. He knows that people's minds desire to think this way. And so... In our current day and time, pornography is one of those major danger zones that people figured out we could make money at this because people really want it. Okay? Here's another interesting one for me as a pastor. 56% of divorces in America involve one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. Over half of the divorces that happen in this country, that is a factor. That's not something you can just ignore. And so you realize that's that's one of the reasons Jesus is pointing this out. When you have thoughts that go astray, and you're trying to satisfy hunger in different places than how God designed it, um, bad things happen. Bad things happen. Okay, so porn is a danger zone. And, and what is porn? Here's the thing. A lot of times we could fall into the same trap as the people in Jesus' day. Like, oh yeah, well I haven't killed anybody because I've never stabbed anybody with a knife. Just like you could say, well, I haven't viewed porn. I've never gone to a pornographic website. Well, there's some other things that are basically the same thing. I would say um, anything that causes you to seek sexual, sexual satisfaction in someone other than your God-given spouse. So viewing anything that causes you to seek satisfaction. So that's kind of what it is. It's everywhere. Another danger zone that goes right along with this would be any other visual entertainment, right? TV shows, 
movies, uh, Netflix, HBO shows, you name it. Here's another one. Commercials, right? Commercials that are designed to catch your attention by getting your mind going in this direction. So what's the solution? Are we just supposed to go live in a metal box and turn off the technology? We've got to talk about this. So thoughts matter, and there's these danger zones that we need to be aware of. But here's the thing. I just threw out there the major challenges that we have in our day and time. Paul had major challenges in his day and time. Jesus' followers had major challenges in their day and time. Guess what? Even the Old Testament saints had challenges in this area in their day and time. It's something that is within us that we want to have when we seek to satisfy it in the wrong way. So what's the way forward? What's Jesus telling us here? What's the way forward? How do we overcome this? He's just, is it just as simple as try harder and quit thinking about these things? I think the way forward that Jesus tells us is radical purity, okay? Radical purity. When I say radical, I mean that it's countercultural. It's not something that's the norm. In fact, people would look at you and say, what you're doing is extreme. How can you do that? How can you say all porn is bad? Radical purity. But here's another question for you. We've talked about the problem and how we all know all these visual things lead our minds astray. Visual things, touch things, words can lead your mind astray, lead you into that down that path of lust and evil desire. But why is this such a big deal in kingdom living? Why does Jesus single this out as one of the six contrasts that he puts in front of the people? Why is this such a big deal? I think before we go there, we just have to realize what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that sexual satisfaction can be found by living according to God's way. Okay, He says, follow God's way. I'm the one who designed this. You have a lot of other voices telling you which way to go on this. But only in my way will you find true fulfillment, true satisfaction. And so, why is this such a big deal? Here's a quote from somebody that I read this week. It says this, your sexual practice reflects your theology. Your sexual practice reflects your theology. You might say, well, what is that supposed to mean, Marcus? What you believe about God and the people he created is a reflection of what you believe about him. What you believe about this particular area is a reflection of what you believe about him. You know, we saw this in the Old Testament. Here's an interesting thing. If you were to go through Scripture and look at all the places where sexual sin was mentioned, the Old Testament, you had the Canaanites, these foreigners, just absolute pagans. They were committing all kinds of sexual immorality. Um, they had prostitutes in their temple. They said, this is an act of worship. Go find yourself a prostitute. That's how you worship. In the Old Testament, the Canaanite religion was full of this, the whole idea of fertility. They took God, what God had created and twisted it and said, this is the way you can be happy. And it was wrong. Here's the thing. What did the Canaanites believe? They believed there were dozens, even hundreds of gods and, and spirits and demons that they worshipped. And so what did their sexual practice show? Sleeping with anybody and every, everybody? It really reflected their view of God. Let's fast forward to the New Testament. Romans chapter 1, where Paul is talking to, to the believers in Rome. Romans 1, he talks about again how God has turned these people over. 
claiming to be wise, they became fools, exchanging the glory of God, the immortal God, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their bodies to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped the creator rather than created rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So what you believe about God is reflected in your sexual practice is what Jesus says here. So the New Testament Greeks, the Romans, that culture, same thing. They had a plurality of gods who were doing all kinds of crazy, chaotic things. In fact, commingling with humans. So what are the people who worship them going to do? Exactly the same thing. Have sex with whoever and whatever you want to and commingle. It doesn't matter. You know, what's interesting is today we have the same attitude, don't we, in our world today. I mean, just the pornographic culture that we live in, you can see it's, it's okay. Go ahead and do whatever you feel like doing. And I would say we don't have these deities anymore. In fact, we probably live more in an atheistic, secularistic age. Uh, where people say God's not real. But isn't it interesting that we're still doing the same destructive things? Now we're saying, hey, the only thing that's real is what's natural. So whatever feels good, go for it. Do it. Because you're a natural creation. You should, or a natural being. Just go for it. I find it really interesting that in all these different cultures, all these different beliefs about gods, the practice ends up being the same. The devil doesn't change his strategy. Because he knows... He can destroy people in an especially powerful way in this area. So whether it's through the Canaanite gods, the Greek pantheon, or through the secularism and atheism of today, you hear the message, it's okay, do whatever you feel like doing. Jesus says, I call you to a different way, a radically different way, a way of purity. You see, we are called to worship the one true God. What do we believe about him? We believe he's pure. He's holy. He brings healing and restoration. He's caring. He's kind. He's gentle. Your sexual practice reflects your theology. And so we're called with those views of God to let that represent the way that we interact with other people in this way. A couple other places in the New Testament that talk about this. Uh, so this is a topic that comes up over and over again. In fact, a lot of people would say, why do the Christians always focus so much on this? They won't let people just do what they want to do. What's the deal? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Again, I think it goes back to this whole thing that this particular area reflects a lot of what you believe about God. Let me show you what I mean from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I've got a couple of verses here on the screen. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 2, it says, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Hold on, let's just pause right there. This is the will of God, your sanctification. You ever wonder what God's will is for your life? I love verses like this. It says, this is God's will for your life. It's sanctification. It's that you're made holy. It's that you're made like Jesus. That's God's will for your life. If you know him, he is making you more and more like Jesus. If you've trusted him, he's transforming you. And then what's the first thing he mentions? That you abstain from sexual immorality. Why does he mention that first? I think it's such a core thing that, again, people across all ages and all times have struggled with. It's a strong desire that God's put in our hearts. And God says you abstain from doing it the wrong way. 
That's what we call sexual immorality. So that each one of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Verse 5, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Again, Paul's saying don't be surprised when you see Gentiles or non-believers doing all these things. They don't know God. Why would they do it any other way? And let and see to it that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. So again, remember, what's the big picture of what you're after in life? It's to follow Jesus, to be made holy. Sanctification. He's making you holy. There's a quote from St. Augustine. He says this, love God and then do whatever you wish. In other words, if you're loving God and wholly sold out to him, following Jesus' way, you're going to want to do it his way. Want to do all of life his way. Love God and do what you wish. I want to give you six challenges for radical purity. Six things that I think this purity kind of looks like in our life today. And uh, So the first one is this. Recognize your sexual sin and confess it. Recognize your sin and then confess it. And here's the deal. When Jesus lays this out in Matthew chapter 5, I dare say there's not a single person in this room or on this platform who hasn't struggled in this way. If not recently, then at some point in your life. We've all been guilty of having impure thoughts. And so it's important to recognize that sin and confess it. God tells us to confess our sins. Here's another one of those key New Testament passages that talk about this topic, about purity. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, it says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, again, that's the front of the list, nor the idolaters. Push pause there again. He throws idolatry right into the list of all these sexual sins. What's the deal there? I think what, what Paul's pointing out, what God is pointing out through Paul, is that sexual sin becomes an idol. It's this thing that we worship and we say, if only I have that, I'll feel good or I'll be fulfilled. If only I just go view porn for the next 15 minutes, I'll feel better. And God says, that's idolatry. You're worshiping something else that can never satisfy you. So neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So you might have been looking again at that first list and saying, oh yeah, I don't worship any idols. I've you know, never committed immorality. And then you get to that one where it says, nor the greedy. Again, I can't point my finger at everyone in this room, but I would say probably a vast majority of us have struggled with greed at some point in our life. So we could almost just pack up and go home now, right? Okay, nobody's going to inherit eternal life. We're all guilty. It's hopeless. Until you come to verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you. See, if you've trusted Christ, if you've believed in him, he's saved you, he's washed you free, washed you clean of all these things. 
You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, declared righteous in the name of Jesus Christ. That brings us to the second challenge is to receive forgiveness for your sin. First, you recognize you've done it, receive forgiveness for your sin. That's what the message of these verses are, is that God says, Jesus alone can give you forgiveness. If you've messed up, there's forgiveness. There's cleansing. You can be clean. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So these two, these first two challenges, incredibly important. This is the gospel. Recognize that you've sinned. You may sin in this way daily. You think about things or see things that take your mind in the wrong direction. Confess it when it happens and know that God says, I forgive you. I've washed you clean. There's cleansing at the foot of the cross. It begins with the gospel. Healing from this begins with the gospel. And you may be a believer. You may have been a believer for a long time and you're in the midst of this struggle right now. Hooked on porn or cheating on your husband or cheating on your wife. It begins by those first two things. Recognize your sin and confess it. And then receive the forgiveness that Christ provides through his blood. That's where it begins. Scripture also tells us some other things that we can be challenged to do here. One is to flee from sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is another word just for anything that's outside of God's plan uh, for sex. In other words, any kind of sexual satisfaction apart from a spouse. Flee from that. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins that a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Okay? So flee from that. 2 Timothy 2.22 says the same thing. Flee from youthful lusts. Colossians 3.8 says, put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, passions, evil desires, all those things. So how do you flee? You know, we have a couple examples in Scripture. We're not going to go into them, but a positive example is you go to the book of Genesis, you can see Joseph. He literally fled from temptation. When he was given a sexual temptation, he ran away. Uh, David, King David, is on the other side of the spectrum. He put himself in a situation where uh, he did not run away from the temptation, and disastrous, catastrophic results happened. So how do you flee? How do you flee? 5, 29, and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better to you for, that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Is that the solution? Just cut off the hand or gouge out the eye? I don't think it is. And here's why. Again, Jesus is telling us that this is a matter of the heart. Even if you don't have an eye anymore, it's not going to prevent you from thinking wrong thoughts. Matter of fact, I had a friend whose father was blind at one point, And he told me his dad used to talk about actually this very thing, how he still struggled with impure thoughts. Even though he couldn't see anything anymore, he said, I remember different things that he'd seen. And he still struggled with it, even with his eyes gone. So I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Why would he say it this way then? Why would he say it this way? 
Here's the deal. He's making a powerful point. This is what we call hyperbole. He's making a really powerful point saying it's, it's this serious. It requires drastic action on your part. You know how back in uh, verses 13 through 16, he says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. Jesus uses figurative language in the Sermon on the Mount, okay? He's not saying that if I walked up to you and, you know, took a taste, you'd taste salty. That's not what he's saying. You might because you're sweaty, but that's not what he's saying. You're not made out of salt. He's also not saying if we flip the lights off and I look over there at uh, Teresa Heap, we'll just see a glowing, a glowing uh, person. She's not literally... A light bulb, okay? But he's saying, figuratively, you are the salt and light of the earth. We talked about what that meant. Here, again, he's making a very powerful point. He's not actually saying, cut your hand off or gouge your eye out. He's saying it takes drastic, radical obedience to be pure. Drastic action is required. Sometimes that means you physically have to run away from something. If you're in a room by yourself and struggling with this temptation, or you're with another person who's tempting you, Leave. Drastic action. Walk away. Doesn't matter what they think of you. Or if you're on technology, perhaps for a season or maybe permanently, you have to get rid of a certain kind of technology because you just can't handle that. When do people fall? I think there's two times that kind of stand out to me. One is when they're tired. They let their guard down. They're worn out. They think they deserve something better. Or the other is when they're prideful and arrogant. And say things like, I would never do that. That's not my problem. Those are the times I think when people fall. Number four and five kind of go together. Seek the greater pleasure. John Piper talks about this, how uh, really the only solution to addiction to pornography and, and sexual sin is to realize that no matter what pleasure you think you're going to get out of that, it pales in comparison to the pleasure of what you will get by following Jesus for your whole life. So seek the greater pleasure. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That leads to pure thoughts and pure actions. Pure thoughts lead to pure actions. Philippians 4.8 Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything of excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You think about that verse. Again, you can't just say, I'm going to get rid of all my bad thoughts and not replace them with something else. So you have to give some thought to what you're going to replace those thoughts with. And Philippians 4.8 gives us a good guide. And the last thing I want to mention on this challenge for radical purity is this idea of ask for help. Okay, This is one thing we know from Scripture. And one thing that I can tell you as a pastor, just watching people walk through this struggle, is you can't conquer this by yourself. Okay, If you're... In chainsaw, maybe you're even just beginning to dabble in it. You can't conquer this on your own. You have to ask for help. And that begins by asking God for help, depending on him. You can't have victory over this kind of sin. It's too powerful without God's help. So ask God first. And then the other thing I would mention is this idea of spiritual friendship. Hopefully you have friends in your lives that you can talk to about this in in the form of accountability. Somebody who's not struggling with the same thing, who can help hold you accountable and walk with you through the journey. Hopefully you have somebody like that. If you don't, I hope soon you will. We're trying to create community like that here at Trinity Church, where you know and live with other people and, and do life together. You can encourage each other. 
And another thing, way you can ask for help is to talk to me, somebody like me, a pastor, me or Miguel, or a counselor, that a Christian counselor that we could recommend. But the big thing is this. If you're struggling, don't try to get out of this on your own. You can't pull yourself out of the quicksand by yourself. Ask for help. Scripture encourages that. So the way forward is radical purity on this issue. Radical purity. On what is it that you're focusing? Are you focusing on what the world tells you is okay? Or are you focusing on the lifestyle that Jesus lays out? And remember that your sexual practice reflects your theology. All right, so there's two more things we want to talk about, two more instructions. We're going to cover them briefly. This, this one, especially this first one, this on divorce, we're going to cover briefly because it actually comes up again in Matthew, and we're going to dwell on it a little more later in Matthew. But I actually think thematically this goes right along with this idea of purity. God says you are called to have consistent character. If you're following me, pure character, faithful character must be true not only in your thought life, but also then in your marriages. Okay? So uh, the instruction number two is this, divorce carefully. And you might say, what? Jesus says divorce carefully? Look at Matthew 35, 31, and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So again, Jesus is saying, don't just go out there and have a divorce for any reason you feel like. He says you're, the instruction from Moses is to divorce careful. We see that in Deuteronomy 24, and we're going to come back to this when we get to Matthew 29 uh, later. But here's the heart of the matter that Jesus is saying. He's really almost saying, don't divorce at all. Because that's not God's will for a marriage. He's saying the heart of the matter is that your marriage vows matter. They're not something that you just treat lightly as, well, that didn't work out. I'm going to go on to the next one. I'm going to leave it behind. That's not the way that God calls us to live out marriage. In Scripture, when you read this section of Scripture, it's talking about commitment. And it does seem to seem, it seem that Scripture and Jesus teach us that there are a limited number of situations where divorce is permitted. But I want us to remember something, is that it's not required, okay? It's not required. Never in Scripture is divorce required. Nor is it that if some of these things happen to you, for example, your spouse is sexually unfaithful to you, that you're required to divorce them. Because it's important to realize that God can heal anything. I recognize we live in a broken world. This is why Moses talked about it in the Old Testament. This is why Jesus is talking about it here. We live in a broken world, and sometimes things can't work out. And I would just say this, is that God hates divorce, right? Divorce does not bring joy to God, ever. I would say this also. You know, what I'm telling you is you may be in a relationship or a marriage where awful things are happening. And I would say that sometimes separation is necessary with the hope that reconciliation could someday happen, especially if you find yourself in a place where there's abuse or physical danger. You don't need to stay in that situation. You need to separate from it so that healing can happen and you can evaluate better what's happening. So I'm not encouraging you by saying avoid divorce, by saying that you have to be, um, you need to be smart about it, be wise about it is what I'm trying to say. So the way forward in this matter, I believe, is radical faithfulness, which is commitment. 
And again, this is not what the world says. The world does not go along with this. But here's why this is so important. Because radical faithfulness to your husband or to your wife is a picture of God's love for us. God's love for us as individuals. God's love for us as the church. God has been faithful to us even when we are faithless to him. Read the Minor Prophets. Read the book of Hosea. Faithful love in marriage is a picture of our relationship with God. It's incredibly important. Let me give you four quick challenges here for radical faithfulness. Number one is embrace God's design for marriage. Embrace how he's laid it out. Remember, he talks about, if you skip over to Matthew 19 or even some of the other passages, it goes back to Genesis. He created the male and female. For this reason shall a man leave his father and mother and join to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. It's God's design. Embrace that between a man and a woman for all all of life. Lifelong commitment. Second thing is embrace your vows. Embrace your vows. If you're married, some of you are not married in here, but again, if you are married, embrace those vows. Go back and look at them. Here are the vows that I actually said to Sarah. Sarah's not in here this morning. She's in the nursery uh, helping watch the kids. But this is what I said. I said, I, Marcus, take you, Sarah, to be my wedded wife. I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband, to love you as Christ loved the church, to have and to hold from this day forward in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. Embrace those vows that you made to your wife or to your husband. Commitment to your spouse. Here's the thing we need to realize about vows in marriage. Whenever you made those, you were not just making a promise to your spouse, to your husband or your wife. It was a three-way promise. You were prom- I promised Sarah that I would love her forever, but I was also promising God I would love her forever. So embrace those vows. Number three, embrace your spouse. Physically embrace your spouse, but also just embrace the fact that God gave that spouse to you, that husband or that wife. Be thankful. Thank that spouse. Thank him or her. And then number four, Ask for help. If you're struggling in your marriage, ask for help. Don't try to solve this on your own. You have to ask for help. And so, again, ask God for help. Hopefully you have spiritual friendship with someone else that they can walk through this with you. And we've also got pastors. You can come talk to me, talk to Miguel, or a counselor. But ask for help. Don't let things go so long that there's irreparable damage done. Don't be ashamed to ask for help. So the way forward is radical faithfulness. So I would encourage you, if you've been faithful to your spouse, remain faithful. Keep doing what you're doing. Stay faithful. But if you failed, or maybe you've been betrayed by a spouse, remember, God is faithful. He can bring hope and restoration and healing into any circumstance. Trust me, there are some crazy situations where God can bring healing. Any situation, he's able to do it. Put your faith in him. He is the faithful one. The last one, just briefly. Fulfill your oaths. Here are the verses from Matthew five thirty-three through 37 Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath, 
by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You know, we've all seen this. Actually, there's places in the Old Testament where God says you can take vows to the Lord, promise the Lord something, take an oath to him. But here's what's happening in Jesus' day. People are saying, here's my word, but I'm also going to give you an extra guarantee. It almost sounds like a TV salesman, right? I'm going to sell you this product, and if you buy now, I'm going to give you an extra 20% for free. And we all look at that and say, I don't trust that person. Kind of the same as, as have you ever had somebody say, let me tell you the honest truth, as opposed to what other kind of truth, right? Anytime you have an abundance of words, an abundance of promises, and you have to make an oath by this or that, God says, that's not from him. That's from the evil one. The heart of the matter is that integrity matters. God says consistency and integrity matters. Integrity in all of life, through what you say and what you do. The way forward is radical honesty. Radical honesty. Now, this whole thing about honesty and truth and faithfulness, purity... That whole idea of being faithful and the idea of being true, faithful and true, actually comes from the same root in the Hebrew language. Now, the New Testament is not written in Hebrew. It's written in Greek. But you know this was in the back of Jesus' mind. Faithful and true. And that's what he calls us to be. For radical honesty, just three things. I have two on the screen, but I'm going to add one. Simple honesty. Radical honesty is just simple honesty. Jesus says, yes, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be consistent in your words and actions. And then the third thing I would tell you is you're pursuing radical honesty is confess to God and others when you've lied against them. That's a good step to take. Why is it important for us to be faithful and true? Why is it important for us to have purity, to be faithful to your spouse, and to be radically honest? Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Radical purity, radical faithfulness, and radical honesty. Let me show you this picture. You can't do this alone, right? See, this is a power strip that's plugged into itself. How much good is that going to do? None at all. You can't do it. You cannot power yourself to do this. But remember what we said at the beginning. Your connection to Christ, your connection to the light of the world, enables you to go out and be a light and to live these things out in a radical way. You are connected to the great king, and he alone can make you righteous. Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Will you bow with me in prayer? God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray for each person in this room. Lord, help us, uh, if we know you, to be radically pure, radically faithful, and radically honest, Lord. To go all out in following you. Thank you for promising to help us in that, to walk with us in that. And Lord, we know it's through faith in you alone that this is even possible. So in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you will, stand, and I'm going to give you a benediction that I think will encourage you uh, as you go forward in this battle. This is from Ephesians chapter 3. Bow with me for this benediction. 
Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or imagine in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forever and ever. Amen. You are dismissed. Now go and make disciples.